Hi everyone, welcome to Hot Seat with Cognizant Clay. I am your host, Clayton Terrio. Today on the show we have Caroline Casey. Caroline is one of the leading disability advocates in the world. Her main focus is inclusion in the business sector. She founded the company The Valuable 500, which aims to get 500 signatures from the world's most influential CEOs and their brands. It hopes to revolutionize disability inclusion in the workplace. I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. Well, hello. <laughs> so nice to hear your voice again. And I'm sorry that we have to do this again, but it's oh all good. No, I'm actually thrilled we're doing it again. I get to have more time with you. It's great. Oh, well, thank you. you know, I appreciate it. Name. I'm lo- as I said, I have a thing about Clayton, so it's great. <laughs> Hold on to that. Oh. Uh, I'm sorry we couldn't do it yesterday, but honestly, the, the music was insane. There's no way we could have heard ourselves think. That's okay. It happens, right? <laughs> it's, uh, I've got a few neighbors that blast music sometimes, and, and yeah, it's I just love like, it. Do you know yeah, I'm, not no, these, me too. I'm not one of these neighbors who goes, oh my God, stop it. I'm like, oh, great. You're having a party. I wish I was with you. <laughs> exactly, for sure. Well, so, yes, so like I said, I'll just go over the same questions because I was really happy with our chat last time. Um, And like I said, just for my viewers, I totally forgot to hit record. And so here we are again. Can I just say, I'm loving the fact that you totally forgot to hit record because it makes me feel just a little bit better about myself. (laughs) Well, and, and we had the opportunity to chat firsthand without the pressure kind of thing. Like it you know what I mean? So it, it is good. So just to start off, how are you doing during all this quarantine, this COVID-19 craziness? Well, you know, I, so my first big thing about it is um, that as somebody who's visually impaired, this whole Zoom situation and this whole communicating with a screen, it's just exhausting. And I really miss, as somebody who's registered blind, so much of my communication is like energy, I guess, and feeling, and I'm not getting that through a screen. And also I can, like most of these, like Zooms and, you know, Teams and StreamYard, I mean, they're, they're not very accessible people who are visually impaired. Um, and also this whole two meter thing, when you're walking outside in the road, I don't know what two meters is. <laughs> so I'm always really worried that I'm, you know, making somebody who's vulnerable feel at risk. Um, I've had a man who's actually slapped a cane in my face, which was quite the thing. Um, but in other ways, I've, so I'm a person who's been running a campaign called The Valuable 500 for the last year and a half. And I've been running around the world. I mean, on a plane every three days. And this feels good to be at home. So there's pros and cons, you know, there's pros yeah, and cons. And definitely. I'm missing hugging. Like I am so missing hugging. Okay. <laughs> yes, definitely. I think a lot of us are. It's just so weird to be so separated. Like my mom comes over, but she works at a hospital. So she has to wear a mask and she barely comes near me because she's worried that she's going to get me. And her hospital has been very lucky. There hasn't been a lot of cases, but she misses hugging people too, because my mom hugs everybody. So. And I'm a hugger. I mean, everybody who knows me, you know, I'm a hugger. And I, so as I say, there's a part where I deeply miss, you know, the physical connectedness, and it doesn't necessarily mean hugging. 
Um, and then yet I'm, I'm at home with my husband and my family, you know, and that feels really good too. So I think it's pros and cons. But well, I, my biggest fear, really, truly, I, I, I'm struggling as a visually impaired person in shops, in queues, and on pavements. I'm, I'm really struggling. And I, I, I just, I don't know how I can make that easier. Do you know? Because I don't look visually impaired, right? I don't look like somebody who has such low vision. So that's hard. Definitely. And I think being at home, having a puppy helps too. Oh, well, yes. Uh, so I like we got a puppy just before lockdown and that has been, <laughs> she might actually come in at some point here. Uh, she, she's, she's a really sassy little dog. Um, she was a runt of a bunch that nobody wanted. Um, so I can relate to that. Uh, so she's, she's, she's certainly, she certainly makes life fun for sure. Definitely for sure. So you were diagnosed with ocular albinism as a child. However, your story takes a bit of a turn. You weren't made fully aware until you were 17. So first off, like, what was your family life like growing up? Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever, anybody's ever asked me what my family life was like growing up. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people who've read my, or who've listened to my TED talk always think that I came from sort of this Walton's type background. I mean, because the highlights of it are my parents discovered I was, I had this condition when I was six months and in deciding where the, what school I was going to go to, they sent me to at normal school and brought me up as a sighted child. So I found out by accident when I was 17 that I had this condition and I was registered legally blind because my father gave me a driving lesson <laughs> for my 17th birthday, knowing that I had this incredible adventurous streak in me. So I think there's always been a lot of confusion about how that all could happen, which brings me to your question. My childhood was actually quite difficult. Um, and a lot of my grit and resilience has got nothing to do with this story of visually impaired. It's that I was in a family that was just like most families, just, just you know, navigating life. You know, my mom was very ill um, from the age of, of 11 for me through to 17 years old. Um, and so my sight and everything else really was of, of no relevant consequence. Um, I'm an interesting adult, so I'm 48 now, but as a child, I had, I've learned to adopt a more extroverted side of my personality. Um, whereas I'm actually very shy. Um, and nobody who know nobody who doesn't know me very well would believe that because like look I look like I'm quite extroverted but I'm not I'm half introvert and half extrovert and I learned strategies when I was younger to hide away from the pain of what was happening in my family um, yeah just to you know just to survive I think I think lots of us do that um, and I think there's a real misconception around the story of the elephant girl, which I, I've been known as, that it, that I lived in some sort of Pollyanna existence. I didn't. And I think actually my, my childhood, and thank you for asking, is where my deep empathy um, came from. And never to make assumptions about how other people are, or we don't know what's going on in somebody's life. And we have no right to judge anybody. Exactly. And did, did you hold any resentment towards your parents for hiding it? Or... Not really. 
No, I, I didn't. And, and the reason I didn't is because of the backdrop of what was going on in my, in my childhood. Um, and, but I do know that when it, when it all eventually came out in the wash and I came out of the closet at 28 years old, I did go and talk to my mom and dad, um, but not in, in a way of accusation, but more in a, in a curious way. I was curious. Um, yeah, I was, it was more curiosity. You know, I think maybe I was lucky um, that I, I knew that what was going on in my family in my childhood was much bigger than my vision. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. And who would you say was the most inspiring person in your young life? Oh, my gosh. In my young life. Okay, like this is going to sound so ridiculous, but it's so true, right? I, like in my young life, I wanted to be Mowgli from the Jungle Book. <laughs> and like, like other people, I was, can I also say Michael J. Fox? Like I loved Michael J. Fox, um, total crushing him. And uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, Led Zeppelin, I just, oh my God, I just love Led Zeppelin. So, and can you just like, so Led Zeppelin, Mowgli, Michael J. Fox, they were, I, I guess there's a, if there's a combined thing in there, there's a stretch about dreaming and freedom. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, well, Michael J. Fox is Canadian, so I like that one. Oh, of course. oh my God, of course. I mean, aside from the fact that I love your name, Clayton. Um, <laughs> yeah, I forget you come from a country I adore, by the way. One of my most favorite places in Canada is um, Cortez Island. Oh, wow. Oh my God, I love Cortez Island. And um, you know, there's a family that's very important to me that they, they live on Cortez Island, the Watsons, and they were my first backers of the Valuable 500. And it was their daughter, Lucinda, who traveled across Colombia with me when I launched the Valuable 500. So uh, I'm a massive Canadian fan, by the way. So I, I forgot Michael J. Fox and Leonard Cohen. Oh my God. So Leonard Cohen was another massive inspiration for me um, when I was 17. Awesome. I like that. So just moving on a bit. So I've seen your TED talk and some of your interviews, including your interview with Molly Burke, which I loved that interview. You guys were so, so funny there, you know, there were tears shed, there was laughs, there was everything. So when, so as you say, you, you waited till you were 28 to tell the world that you were visually impaired and just wondering why did you hide it for so long? And were there any, ever any signs before you were 17 that you thought you were visually impaired at all? Because that to me just blows my mind. Look, I, you know, it blows my own mind looking back on that story, right? Well, firstly, to answer the part of your question, I didn't have a Clayton and I didn't have a Molly Burke at that time. There were none of you. None of, like your generation, your generation had the greatest chance to end the disability inequality crisis. I totally believe in you. I, you know, for the work that I do now, we're constantly making sure that we have your voice in there. But because there wasn't people, I couldn't see in me, right? And I don't mean I physically couldn't see in me, there wasn't people like me. So when I was, you know, leaving school, you know, and deciding what I wanted to be. And I mean, I discovered at 17 on my 17th birthday that I was registered blind and that's when I hit it because that was at that really important flexion point about your life and what you're gonna be. And I, 
I thought if I disclosed that I, I had a sight issue, that I wouldn't have the same chance as anybody else. And let's be honest, that was 1989. And it is a misconception, but maybe that was understandable because I experienced that. I didn't see people like you guys. I didn't see Molly out there, you know? And we didn't have, see, we didn't have social media. We didn't even have a, an internet, so you know what I mean? Um, and I think, I'm gonna give you a statistic that's really important to know. Um, when we were launching the Valuable 500, we did a piece of research with um, EY, and that said 7% of our business leaders have a disability and four out of five of them are hiding it. Now, that's in, that's in this time. Can you imagine wow. what it was like 20 years ago, right? So I think there is just still a huge discomfort around disability that will be changed and broken by you. And the more that we speak, the more that we normalize it, there's brilliant influencers out there now's the time for change but back then there wasn't there wasn't that and therefore i made a bad decision to conceal my disability until i was 28 years old um, because at the 28 years old i just i when i was working for accenture as a management consultant who i'd lied to and didn't tell them i couldn't see very well it just it became too much it became too much to pretend to be somebody i wasn't you know i often say but, you know, Maya Angelou's quote, there's no greater agony than an untold story inside you. I was just exhausted trying to be perfect. You know, and I, I, I don't know what perfect is, but like, yeah, that's I, I was forced out of that closet at 28. Definitely. And how, how did you overcome that? Um, like, how did you overcome coming out? Like, were there any coping mechanisms, anything you did? Like, like, how did you overcome it personally? Um, like, you see, I don't think you need to have a disability to, to struggle with self-acceptance, right? I think all of us are on a journey, um, cause all of us want to belong as we are. We don't want to try and fit in and, you know, be accepted. And it's really hard. Like self-acceptance is a lifelong journey. Um, for me, um, how I, <laughs> how I started my journey about accepting my sight is Accenture when I disclosed to them at the end of 1999 that I couldn't see them right now um, they sent me to an eye specialist and the eye specialist was like you know like, what's up with you you know would you ever get over yourself um, what a great man uh, Dr. Michael Brown and he said that I had damaged my eyes by not asking for help, which I had. And he said, thankfully it's temporary. And he was like, I think you need to take some time off. And what I did was, I did take some time off and I took my time off by being Mowgli from the Jungle Book. So in the year 2000, I made a decision to take a sabbatical from a management consultant to being an elephant handler um, and that was how I was Mowgli from the Jungle Book. And I went across India um, on the back of an elephant, a thousand kilometers. And that's how I started my journey of self-acceptance by kind of fulfilling a childhood dream and saying, screw you guys telling me I can't do what I want. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. And, and 
just leading into that, how how did that come about becoming an elephant handler in India? <laughs> Seriously, Clayton, you know what? I don't know. I'd love to say that I had plans, okay? I'd love to say that I had to-do lists or I'm very good at this. I'm shite, okay? I'm really bad at plans and, you know, it's not one of my strong areas. How it came about was I when I went into Dr. Michael Brown's office and he gave me like, would you get over yourself script? He didn't even, he didn't challenge my eyes, but he did ask me, you know, what I wanted to be when I was younger, kind of like you saying, you know, who did you find inspiring? And, you know, as I left his office, he just said, look, I have a funny feeling you're going to do something else with your life. And I was so angry with him. And, you know, I was like, yeah, well, screw you. <laughs> I just want you to give me a magic operation. Um, and I, I, within about an hour of leaving his office, I was going for a run along a beach. Now, back then I used to run on my own. Now I run with a sighted guide, thank you. But then I didn't. And it was when I ran along that beach, I, I don't know, I was feeling sorry for myself, shame. Yeah, I don't know. I, and I probably wasn't focusing or concentrating and I fell. And it really was, I mean, it sounds very, you know, movie, but it's true. I did fall. I did fall on a rock that I call snot rock. I, it was in March in Dublin and it was raining and I was too scared to get off that rock and I didn't know how I was going to. And then I replay the conversation of Dr. Michael Brown in my head and the idea of being Mowgli. I mean, it's so true. Like, this is true. This is not a fake story. Mowgli came into my head and that's the day I decided I would go across Indy on an elephant. <laughs> it is definitely a wild I mean, story. I don't really sound, I don't really sound super together, but I mean, <laughs> this, this decision is, I mean, it, it was, it transformed my life. I mean, if I had known then what I know now, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the less you know, the more you believe, right? Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I had a clue. I was just in a dark place. I didn't like myself very much. I had huge levels of shame about not owning my own sight loss. So it just seemed like, well, why not be Mowgli from the Jungle Book? <laughs> it does sound crazy, but it, it is definitely a story to tell. What, what are some of your fondest memories from that trip? You know... The first thing, I really wish, I mean, I, I have a, you know, I, I wish I could curse, but I'm not going to curse, but it, it feels like bleep, I did it. Like it's, you know, for so <laughs> long, people tell you what you can't do, right? Forget whether you have a disability or not. But the, my favorite memory is when I stepped off that plane in India, in Delhi, and my feet were on the ground and I was like, oh my God, I'm here you know, and knowing I arrived because I'm Irish Catholic and guilty and I decided I couldn't do this just for myself. I was going to raise money for Sysavers International to pay for cataract operations in this country that transformed my life. So that was a feeling of accomplishment. Um, and the second moment was meeting my elephant, Kanchi. I'll never forget the smell of her. I remember smelling her before I saw her and hearing her trunk along the ground and going up to her and putting my forehead against her forehead. 
it was incredible. And then also my other big moment was when I got to write solo. It was a big deal because I didn't train as a Mahot. I mean, on a, a howdah, I was on the back of her neck. I trained hard. I worked hard. I controlled her. Mounting her, like on her on her leg was, yeah, pokane. Um, learning a bit of Malayalam, by the way, I only still have a few words of elephant Malayalam, but, and also the great extraordinary feeling of being with um, the people from Southern India. They were just some of the kindest people and great moments around sitting around campfires. And we, we slept on the side of roads. Like there was nothing glamorous about my trip, by the way. Um, I have so many memories. Yeah. I can still, if I close my eyes, I can still, I can still smell it. I can still feel it. And um, I think National Geographic, they released the, the license for the film after we've done it. So it's on YouTube. I still haven't watched it because on YouTube because I can't, it's still so, though it's 20 years ago, it's, uh, yeah, it's the most extraordinary journey in my life. Definitely. And, and and thanks for sharing that because that's crazy. And and thanks for raising all that money. Like I, I said in the last chat, like whatever, $250,000, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a noob with European currency, but it, it's dollars here. And, and just knowing that you did that, like I said before, too, my grandpa was blind and he, it was macular degeneration. He had his eyesight for 70 plus years, but he just taught me you know, don't feel bad about yourself for your disability because, you know, he said the same thing you did. You have the resources. I did not. Like he got diagnosed in the nineties as well, mid nineties. Okay. So yeah. it, there, like you said, there wasn't a Clayton, there wasn't a Molly back then. And, and it's only a very new thing. And, and that's, you know, it's good to fight the inequality because it is a crisis that not many people realize is a crisis. No. And it's a big crisis. I mean, Look, we have to remember there's 1.3 billion of us in the world, and this is before we talk about age, who have a lived experience of disability right across the experience of disability. And 90% of kids with a disability do not get into a classroom, Clayton. We're lucky. Um, Molly would say that too. We're lucky. Um, you're 50% more likely to experience poverty and not have a job, you know? And I guess that has been my absolute frustration I mean, how, when we're talking about 15 to 20% of our global population, 80% is acquired between the ages of 18 and 64. Like, how are we not seeing accelerated change? Um, and I think after that elephant trip, it was just like, I have got to be part of changing this. This is insane. Like, this is, in, this is just crazy that this happens because this community that we you and I are part of is such a resource of innovation and and insight and talent and that different lived experience, which has been so profound when you consider COVID. Like business just needs to wake up to it, you know? I don't need your pity. Like seriously, <laughs> where are your consumers and your talent and your suppliers like anybody else? And I guess that's been my life's work. It's going, get over yourselves, you know? Like inclusive business needs, like inclusive business creates inclusive societies. And I think that's what I really felt when I got off the elephant, it was like, I cannot go back to Accenture. I have to be part of trying to change this. It's, it's mad, right? Definitely. And, and, and I think that's why I'm doing what I'm doing is raise the awareness because it's, it's, you know, it needs to be out there. Like, like I believe you said before, we don't need your pity. We just need you to ask the questions, accept us and, and hire us for God's sake. <laughs> 
but we are you. You see, this is, the, this is just such an interesting thing, right? So as I say, like 80% of disability is acquired between the ages of 18 and 64. 80% is invisible. And the other thing is every single human being on this planet will experience disability at some point in their life. So this them and us, sorry, I'm just about to say shit. Um, like this them and us thing is ridiculous. This is all of us. Disability is part of the human condition. We need to remove barriers for us each to reach our potential in society. You know, it's, it's ridiculous that it's been, the, it, like, we're, do you know what I think is one of the greatest oxymorons is they go, oh, disability is the biggest marginalized group. Do you know how insane that is? The biggest marginalized group? We are 15 to 20% of our population. Disability does not discriminate. Every single one of us will experience it and every one of us knows somebody. So why, why is there such a problem about exclusion of people with disabilities? Why do we have to keep making the case for our potential and our ability? Like, that's mad. Since when do we have to make the case for being a human being? Like, really? <laughs> yep, <I'm> very <laughs> true. That's okay. I like the emotion because it is an emotional topic. And, and again, it needs to be addressed. So uh, just to cut you off a little bit, I'm, I'm going to do my, my rapid fire segment that I do with my guests, which is my favorite part of the whole thing, to be honest. Um, so first of all, who is your favorite person from Ireland? Okay, so I've so told you before, I don't do favorites, non-discriminatory, but it's just because I have so many things <laughs> I like. But, okay, my favorite person is, other than my husband and my mom and my, my family, my sister, my brother. Okay, so we'll take them outside. It's Bob Geldof. And I love Bob Geldof because he is unrelenting and getting what he, he believes in and what he wants. And he uses his heart and his emotion and he is just unapologetic. Love him. I'd love to interview him. He'd be a good one. Oh, me too. Sure. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite thing to eat? And like you say, you don't do favorites. So give me maybe a top three. Thai green curry, delish. <laughs> um, am, I allowed to use, am I allowed to have a, a drink in there? margarita yeah. and then watermelon awesome oh, oh 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 and and of course i'm irish proper chipper chips with salt and vinegar not fries chips <laughs> definitely i actually just had fish and chips the other day so there you go nice it's one of my favorite things to eat if you could be anybody living or dead for 24 hours who would you choose yeah, it's like this question is just too scary. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> I So, uh, listen, I've, I've said this all along. I really wish the talent... No, the talent I'd love to have is to be able to sing. I'd love to be able to sing. I speak a lot on stage. But I just love to be able to sing. Um, and I've many, many... I love music and I love um, musicians. So I, we're going to go to, because you're Canadian, I'm going to say Leonard Cohen. I think he had a great life and he spent a lot of time in Hydra in Greece, which is one of my most favorite countries in the world. And I think he's a poet. He's a beautiful voice. And when he died, he died a few weeks after my father. And I, I was, it was like heartbroken. But also Leonard Cohen is how I met my husband. So... Awesome. I like Leonard. that answer. 
And la last question of the rapid fire. What is your proudest achievement as a disability advocate? Oh, never giving up. Never, ever, ever giving up on what I believe in. I'm 20 years doing this and I feel proud, which is an unusual thing for me to say. Um, the valuable 500 and never giving up on that and seeing that launch at the World Economic Forum in Davos when everybody said I was crazy and I should just go small. I was like, no, go big. Definitely go big or go home is a very cliche statement, but it's true. And you got to meet Molly in Davos, correct? Wow, I got to, oh, oh no, no. So Molly and I have a very interesting story, but um, I, when we did One Young World uh, this year, uh, last year in 2019, I really, um, I wanted Molly Burke, because as I said to you at the beginning of this conversation, it's your generation, and I'm coming after you, Clayton. You don't, you don't, <laughs> get, to, you don't get to wriggle out is I really believe you, your voices, all of your voices from all around the world, and I mean globally, are so important. And so Molly came over to speak at One Young World, and um, I had the chance then to bring Molly Burke and Eddie Nobudu to, um, to the main stage of Davos in the World Economic Forum. And that was, I kind of feel like a baton handing on, like middle-aged menopausal woman handing on to Molly and, and to Eddie. Um, and that was really, that was an incredible moment for me. I was very, very, it's very emotional, actually. I was very proud of it. Yeah. Definitely. And, and Molly is a great person. She is, I've been, I've Happy. actually messaging her to try to get her on my channel and she hasn't responded yet, but oh, I'm going to well, Let me see if I can reach out to her because you should do. She's just, she's absolutely fabulous. She's Irish jeans in her, for God's sake. She's an Irish mom. <laughs> And also Judy Human is the other one that I'm really trying to get because she's a oh, pioneer. She is an edge of pioneer. Judy Human. Oh yeah. So I was only talking to Judy 10 days ago. And when I watched Crip Cramp at the beginning of lockdown, um, I'll be honest with you. I, I cried my way. I oh yeah. I cried my way through Crip Cramp. I've known Judy a long time since 2007. Uh, I met her through Andy and Parato and I just, if I could do a 10th of what Judy has done with business and disability to the Valuable 500, I would be so proud. And I'm actually going to be interviewing Judy, believe it or not, uh, next week for the Valuable 500. So I, I can't wait for that. But there's something about Crip Camp. And, you know, anybody who has not seen it, please go watch it, is just the audacity and the heart and the grit of this group of people is just amazing. And Judy was right at the core of it. Definitely. And I, I watched that. I watched that with my girlfriend who also is disabled. She's got cerebral palsy and we were both just tearing up through the whole thing because it's, it's just, it's a revolution. That's the only word yeah. I can use is revolutionary. Yeah. Oh, totally. And like I call the valuable 500, the inclusion revolution, you know, and, and I think that revolutionary spirit is very alive at the moment. Um, I mean, I can't, I, I talk about when, we go from revolution to evolution around true human inclusion. I mean, that's the piece that I, I'm so interested in and, and, and business is part of that, but so inspired by, and I hate that word inspired, but so <laughs> encouraged uh, and motivated and by, yeah, by the, yeah, like it's the 30th anniversary of the American with Disabilities Act, you know, like let's, that's 30 years ago. 
And when you think about what, what they did to, to make that happen, I think it's incredible. Definitely, incredible. definitely. And so just moving back to the questions here. So I mentioned before, my friend Joe, he is called Dystrophy Dad on Instagram. And he's, if anybody's watching this, please give him a follow because he is one of the greatest men I've ever met. He, hey, also, has mus- he also has muscular dystrophy. And we do, a, we do a collective together called Sons of Dystrophy, which is a takeoff of Sons of Anarchy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Joe, myself, and our other friend, Brad, who all have muscular dystrophy, and we do blogs every week, three or four times a week, together. So Joe saw you speak in Edinburgh. Again, I'm not sure the year or where exactly, but he knew nothing about you going in. He had heard your name, but he didn't know your story. And, and the thing that blew him away was like you said before, it's not very apparent that you have uh, low vision. And he was just blown away by the fact that you announced this and it gave him a new perception on invisible disabilities, which I think are the number, like number one discriminated against because you don't know. And so in your experience, what do you feel we can do to challenge people and change the perception of the disabled community? Um, I mean, you, <laughs> you, Molly, I mean, Eddie, Joe, uh, Claudia Gordon, I mean, I could go on and on, Haben Germa, I mean, I, there's so many people, you, you, you great generation of people, get out, use your voices. Um, the more we talk about disability in a normal way, the more we see disability in every aspect of life. The more disabled people are talking about anything but disability, actually, it would be fantastic. Um, the more we have representation of disability on our screens, in our, in our art, uh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I think we're, we have a greater chance now because the more we see it, the more we discuss it, the more normal it becomes. Um, and I think if we join all those dots up, then we have some chance of change. But I, I really want us to move away um, from old stereotypes and narratives. You know, certainly when I grew up, disability was something to be inspired by or to feel sorry for or was freakish. And I often talk about, you know, the, the representation of disability in James Bond films, for example, like every criminal had a disability. I'm like, seriously, you know, having a disability is uh, it's part of who we are. It doesn't define us. I think I read something that you posted recently, Clayton, saying, though I may have a burden, I am not a burden. I'm like, I love that. Um, So I think the more that we have people with disabilities telling their stories, just being human beings like anybody else, you know, I I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. And like you say, speaking about things other than being disabled, what you do, what, what your community's doing, you know, raising that awareness through other means. Like, like you said before, we don't need pity. We just want you to listen. That's it. But like, very interestingly, just for a second, you know, you just said myself and my girlfriend sat down and watched Crip Camp. Now I know there's people going, huh? Like you have a girlfriend. And I think there's a million things going through their heads. And I think we have to, allow that curiosity. I would prefer that people would ask that question. And it's up to me in my particular instance to respond to that. Um, But it's the worst part is when they don't ask the question and they're like wondering it in their head and they're frightened of causing offense. 
So I don't know, isn't there that? It's really complicated, isn't it? So that the assumption of what disability is, or what muscular dystrophy is, or what register blind is, and the more we don't speak about this, then that it'll just remain something that people are too frightened to speak about. And when you're too frightened to speak about, we can't do anything about it, right? Definitely. And, and just to go off topic a little bit, my girlfriend's name is Alexa. She has Irish blood, so ah, she's nice. very excited. And she wears a clotter ring. She wanted you to know she wears a clotter. Oh, my God, a clotter ring. Oh, my God. That's a big deal, Alexa. That's a big deal. Clotter rings are a very big deal. I think they're even more of a big deal to um, Irish connections who don't live in Ireland so much anymore. Though the clotter is a huge, uh, yeah, absolutely. Very Irish. Very cool. Definitely. And she, she loves you, so there you go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes, of course. So in 2005, and at... I'm just going to call it the, the later name, even though it's not a company where you founded Conchi, which was committed to promoting hiring people with disabilities where jobs are available. And so you've obviously moved on, but just to know, do you remember when that came about and also just like what it became? Like what went through your mind to start that foundation? I mean, look, everything that I have done over 20 years, whether it was the first organization, which was the Ashing Foundation, the next organization, which was Canchi, the big project, which was the Ability Awards, and then it went on to hashtag Valuable and Valuable 500. The, the in, inspiration, we had, can't use that word. The, um, <laughs> the origin of that, of that purpose really was when I came out of the closet in Accenture and I looked around me and the media, because could you imagine a, an Irish woman with ocular albinism going across Indian elephant, the media were like, oh my God, let's, who is this woman? And a lot of, I was asked a lot of questions about disability. Uh, and that's when I realized, as I said, the extraordinary inequality crisis that existed. And when I looked around, I was like, whoa, where's business, right? I just, I had been so blind, excuse me, but I had been so blind, A, to the scale of the issue, and B, I was like, well, hold on, at that time, because that's back in the year of 2000 and 2001, it was the emergence of us, really CSR was becoming really big, and then the environment and gender, and I'm like, well, where's disability in business? And the kernel of everything I've done, regardless of what organization, what vehicle, what campaign, is the only way to end the disability inequality crisis. Governments cannot do it on their own. Charity cannot do it on their own. The, the issue is too big. It needs the most powerful force on the planet, in my understanding, which is business. And to make that come to the table, we need the most powerful force within business, which is the leaders. And so that's what's got me to here today is saying, I want to find 500 of the world's most influential leaders and their brands to collectively transform the business system so it sees the value of people with disabilities and their families as customers and talent and suppliers. So, you know, this is 20 years, Clayton. Look at the lines on my face. 20 years of doing this work and my, my feelings and my passion and my belief has never changed, regardless of the organization or the vehicle that I've done. Definitely. And, and it's people think value is money and value is not money. It's your customer. You don't get money without customers. So come on, wake up a little bit here. Um, yeah. And by the way, just so we just, we're going to be really clear here before we put in an aging population, 
the value of the disability market is eight trillion. Eight trillion. And I'm just like, sorry, what is it about our custom that you don't want? Right? So really? And then the other part of it is it if you, you know, we start talking about universal design and human-centered design, some of the greatest insights for that come from the disability community and come from serving the disability community. And when I kind of underline that, let's look at Apple. Okay, whether you like Apple or not, or Steve Jobs or not, it was the first company in the world to trigger one trillion. And I really believe that's because right at the center of Steve Jobs' idea was, I want to create beautiful products for everyone. Okay, and look where inclusive design and human-centered design has, has intersected with profitability. That's Apple. Definitely. And, and the, I'm not sure if people are aware, but they used to base disability off the medical model and that's just not right. You got to go social or else you're just not going to achieve anything because if you just go off the disabilities alone, you're going to lose. I I find that is a major thing. Well, so let's just, so you're so right. So the medical model is I will fix you. I can hear Coldplay coming on here. I will fix you. But anyway, that's the, that's the medical model, social model, which seems to be more European, but is definitely adopted now in America, is that it's society that disables us. It's not the other way around. And when we talk about the valuable 500, in a way, I'm trying to push this valuable market to society. We are of value. So we've moved from medical to fixing, to society with disabling, to say that this market is a valuable market to society and to business. If we get that right, we get actually inclusion right and we get value right of humanity right across the board. Yes, for sure. And, and I actually learned that in an inclusion course. I took one to Curtin University in Australia. It was a MOOC, so an online, like a massive online course, and it was free. But I've told a lot of my friends, you should take this course because you may be non-disabled, but you need to understand how big of a crisis this, this really is. And that leads me to my other question is, how do you feel non-disabled people can help these initiatives? So, um, I have a husband who doesn't have a disability essentially. And um, I, I, what I would say is the, and my family, similarly, I have a sister who has the exact same eye condition as myself, but my brother doesn't. So I think the thing that we is, every one of us has friends and family who may not at the moment have a lived experience of disability. So I think it's about allyship. It's about not making assumptions, not being too frightened to ask the questions, but simply what I want to encourage everybody is you don't have to be an expert in disability because you don't have it, but please ask the question. And the more we ask, the more we can do something with that. Um, I, my biggest, I don't know about you, Clayton, but my biggest fear is that in this world of PC, we're so scared of getting it wrong, so we'll never ask. And we don't talk about something, it doesn't get done. Right. And, and I can't bear the invisibility. Like I often say, there's something worse than being bullied, and that's being invisible. So the people who don't currently have a lived experience of disability is not making assumptions and just being mindful when we talk about education, when we talk about business, when we talk about transport, opening up their eyes and saying, oh my gosh, is this accessible to people with disabilities? And using your consumer power and your voice to ask, because that's 
because it will be at some point you. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. I talked to you. I don't know if you know who Rick Mercer is. He's one of our political satirists here in Canada. And not many people know him apart out of Canada, but he is completely able-bodied, but he is a huge ally for the disabled community. And he's built his cottage out on the East Coast of Canada, completely accessible, because he doesn't know if he'll be disabled or if maybe he meets somebody who wants to come visit him who's disabled. And he is all for inclusion. And I think he is a very good like example of how able-bodied people can help out and and it's it's very hard for them to relate to us but they can help and that's all that we really need is assistance for sure can i give you a, a little story just for like that might help you so gar my husband um so he was uh so we have a festival here called the electric picnic and um, which was founded by John Reynolds in Ireland. And in creating the picnic, John, uh, John and Gar went over to Glastonbury and uh, just to see how, you know, because Gar was going to be part of making sure that logistically and health and safety and everything um, was going to be correct. And he came across day one and it was raining in Glastonbury and he came across a young guy uh, in a wheelchair. And um, his girlfriend had gone to the stage and because it was so mucky, this gentleman couldn't get his chair to the main stage. And it went into Gar's mind. He was like, hold on. He's coming to this festival. He's stuck because the mud was too much for the chair. And so when Gar came back and they were trying to create the electric picnic, he from his outset, from his mind is like, I don't want somebody to have a barrier like that. And Gara hadn't known somebody with a disability necessarily on a personal level, but when he saw that, he was like, how can I, how could we design something that keeps people out? And that was a real aha moment for him. So, and this is my thing about constantly coming in touch with people who have a different lived experience. How can we design things better? It's just a great example. Definitely. And, and that, thank you for sharing that because that's, that's pretty, that's different. Like you say, you're able-bodied, you've never really, they just don't think about it. And, and it's, it's sad because they might need it one day. And it's, it's just crazy. I remember my dad and I love golf and we went to the Canadian open one year and there's only maybe three or four areas where people in wheelchairs can get elevated to see. And they had a wheelchair like stand for people to drive up onto, but there was a curb with no ramp. And we thought, well, hang on. Yeah, it's great that you tried, but why isn't there a ramp? How did nobody think to put a ramp up to it? Exactly. And we, we complained and they actually gave us a free ticket for the next day and said, thank you very much for raising that. And yeah. from then, from that year on, there was a ramp up to the, the thing. So like you say, just speak up. Everybody always assumes, oh, someone must have said something already. No, you don't know that. Just speak up. Speak your, use your voice and, and tell them, you know what? I can't get up there. What What are you thinking here? And it, it, it changed for the better. And every year since we've noticed there's a ramp. So it's very, very important. So just touching on the valuable 500 a little bit, can you just, you talked a little bit about it, but 
how is that coming along? What, what, what are some updates you can give me? Oh, well, thank you for asking, because that's, you know, you asked me what I was most proud about. So we launched it in the World Economic Forum on the main stage of Davos. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's probably one of the most important business platforms in the world. Disability has never taken main stage. And I, there's no way I was going to let it be anything but main stage. And so in 2019, with five of the world's most influential business leaders, we launched the Valuable 500. And essentially what that is to do is to elevate the conversation of disability inclusion to leadership level, because 54% of our leadership boards have never had a conversation about disability. Like, I mean, how are we ever going to get equality? And our job was to try and go on an iconic search for 500 of the world's most influential CEOs and their brands to commit to putting disability at their leadership agenda, make a commitment to action and communicate that externally and internally. So that's our job is to build this community. And then in January, we're gonna launch the next stage of the Valuable 500, which is to activate this community to drive the change throughout our business systems. So where are we now? Very exciting. At 285 companies and CEOs that represents 4 trillion in revenue, 14 million employees, 46 sectors and 24 countries. And I believe, so I was told, there has never been an initiative that has ever been able to do that in such a short amount of time. And the reason I'm so proud of that is because we did that, I had to remortgage my house to make this work, seriously. But we have a chairman, Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever, One Young World, Omnicom and Virgin Media as our partners. And sometimes when you need to make change happen, you don't have to change everybody. It's just finding a few first followers or believers. And I'm really proud. So um, this is my call out. Anybody who has a Canadian company or a company around the world to join the Valuable 500, we only have 214 places left. So yeah. Awesome. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think Canada will get behind you on that. We're pretty inclusive for the most part. You really are. You really are. Yeah. Yes, and I love living here. It's a, it's a great, great country to live in. Well, you know, Yasmin LaRoche is somebody I've met um, um, over the last year and a half. And, you know, there's the expression, you know, nothing with us without us. And so I love what Yasmin said in November at um, a big meeting in Geneva. And she just turns around and says, nothing without us. And I totally agree. As we redesign our world post-COVID, nothing without us, you know? We are all allies for each other in inclusion. No inclusive world can happen. No, no economic recovery can happen without it being inclusive of people with disabilities and their families. End of, no more excuses. No more excuses. We've seen that our business systems have changed and adapted in COVID, so no more excuses. Definitely. That, that actually brings me to my next question. So during COVID, it's obviously very taxing on everyone. You mentioned earlier on that, you know, it's, it really changes your perspective and, and you learn a lot of things from it. How do you feel we can continue to keep this awareness for the disabled community at the forefront during this time? Well, you know, I think, um, so many different communities, actually all of human humanity have been touched by COVID. And I remember at the beginning of this pandemic, you heard people 
say, oh, this is the great equalizer. It's like, what are you talking about? This is the great expose of the inequity and inequality in our world. I mean, so we have had a collective sense of exclusion. And you cannot unknow that. So how can any of us, as we plan forward, consciously exclude anyone? You can't. You know, we say our, our systems can't change. They can't. People with disabilities have been working from home or remotely for quite some time. And look what happened now through, the, through this pandemic crisis. Um, and actually business has said, oh, well, that shows their agility and their flexibility. Some of the best, um, some of the businesses that have fared best, by the way, through this COVID crisis are businesses who are more inclusive. And so I, I challenge us as we move forward, as we reset our business systems and our societal systems and our government systems and our health system and our education systems, you do not have an excuse anymore to leave anybody out. You do not, you cannot. Because I actually think once again, coming back to your generation, Clayton, is I don't think you're gonna tolerate it. And you have power as that next generation talent, as consumers to choose who do you spend time with or who you buy from. Use your voices. It is not okay for us to have a la carte or pick and mix inclusion or exclusion where we just define that one group is more important than the other. There is not. And we need to ensure as we move forward that every single voice on this planet is included. And we know we can do it. We know we can. And I hope the collective maybe empathy that we have felt for a moment will extend in the long-term planning and strategy of our systems. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, thank I don't yeah. think we're gonna let anybody off the hook. No, and I, I think our generation, even even relating, it's it's you know it's off topic a little bit, but it still falls under discrimination. The killing of George Floyd. It yeah. was our generation that started those marches and said, "Enough is enough." Like no matter the exclusion, whether it's race, disability, yeah. you know what country you're from, it doesn't matter. We are all people, and we can all bring something to society. There's no excuse for the poverty or the discrimination anymore. No. And enough is enough. We need to fix it now. And now is the time to do it. And I think one of the things is that we have to be mindful to give space to different communities to have and to educate us. So from my perspective, I, I, I'm Irish and I am white and I have a disability. I do not have a black American experience. So it's my job now not to take up that oxygen in this space, but to be to listen and to learn and to educate myself. And one of the things that we've done in the Valuable 500 is talked about the intersectionality um, between disability and being black. And I think that's a part that we really have to support each other. We are all here as allies for each other. Every single one of us, allyship, 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 allyship. And for now, I, I'm trying to educate myself as best as I can. Um, and I think that's what we probably all need to do, isn't it? You know, when we don't have this, a similar lived experience is to pull back and listen and to learn. Uh, and I think that's what we're asking of people who don't have a disability as well to do the same. Yes, empathy, definitely empathy. Number one word for all of this going on in the world right now is empathy. Listen, don't assume, 
you don't know what that person is going through. And even I was talking to my friend Dylan last night, he's a veteran and he had PTSD, depression, he uh, attempted suicide. And he said, you need to open up and just listen to people. You don't know what anybody's going through, but if you try to understand, he is totally against sympathy. Sympathy and pity are his two least favorite things. He says, empathy and kindness are the two we need. And learning, like you say, learning is, there's no excuse for not learning anymore. Ignorance is bliss. I hate that statement because you know there's the internet right you can learn anything at any time and it's it's you have to take that accountability among yourselves and not other people and i think that's another major thing as well yeah i agree i i really agree i think it's about a time for for no assumptions and nobody should have to justify their experience their experience their experience we have to take people at that it's really really important definitely well that's about all I have for you, Caroline. Thank you so much for helping me this weekend. I really do appreciate it. Oh, Clayton, I like I'm your fan, but I have to say I think there's I think there's a rock band in you somewhere. I was I was saying to <laughs> to my family and friends this weekend. I said I met this great dude called Clayton. I have just a funny feeling about you. Like I just yeah, I think we'll be hearing a lot more from you in the future. I can't wait. Yes, thank you. I really do appreciate that. And I hope we stay in touch because it it has been an honor to meet you and chat with you. All right. Well, you have yourself a good one and I will send the link out when it's posted. Okay. Love you. Take care. Yes. Take care, Caroline.